Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Shortly after my wife and I were married uh, in the uh, mid-90s, we started attending a church in Indianapolis called College Park. And I remember the first time I sat down and uh, listened to the pastor preaching. He was preaching through the book of 1 Samuel and just went right through a chapter of, of 1 Samuel. And the next Sunday we went back and he just picked up right where he left off and went through the next chapter of 1 Samuel. And we kept going back and he just kept going through 1 Samuel, never departing from that book. And I remember being so surprised at that way of approaching preaching because I had never seen that before. I'd been brought up in the church and every place in the church where I've been, the sermons had always been kind of topical. It's about whatever you know the pastor happened to have on his heart or on his mind at the time. And so here I was seeing this preaching that was just going right through a book of the Bible. And that was just so illuminating to me. I mean, there were just so many things in the Bible that I'd never seen before. I realized how much of the Bible I really didn't know. I was surprised at how really interesting the Bible is when you let it speak for itself. And uh, found that there is actually a name for this. It's called consecutive expository preaching. Consecutive expository preaching, where you open up a passage of Scripture, but you go consecutively through a book of the Bible. Um, now, we're not the only church that, that does that. But it is something that's fairly rare, but it's something that is very valuable. Now, we do topical sermon series here. We just got done with one. We went through a sermon series on the attributes of God. But we are going to begin a consecutive expository preaching series this morning on the book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, open your Bible to 1 Peter. Um, and I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles to church, particularly when you go through a sermon series of this kind. It is very valuable to have a Bible before you because we'll be looking um, at these passages in some detail. If you didn't bring one this morning, that's okay. Don't feel awkward. I just encourage you to bring one in the future. We do have Bibles in the back on the bookshelf in the back corner there. There's several Bibles. You can uh, grab one uh, if you'd like. But here is, I just want to tell you a few advantages of a consecutive expository preaching series going through a book. Um, <clears throat> one of the advantages of this is it keeps pastors from riding hobby horses in their sermons. You know, it keeps pastors from just constantly returning to the things that they want to talk about. Uh, if a pastor is preaching through a book of the Bible, he's got to preach what is there on the pages of Scripture, whether he wants to preach it or not. And that leads to the second advantage of this kind of preaching. It forces pastors to preach on passages they might otherwise avoid or overlook or dismiss. Maybe passages that are difficult, passages that might be controversial. Um, we'll find some controversial passages here in 1 Peter that are going to need to be dealt with. But we believe all the Bible is inspired by God. We believe all of the Bible is profitable for teaching and training in righteousness. Not just the passages we happen to prefer. Not just the passages that happen to give us a warm fuzzy. So uh, one of the advantages of this kind of preaching is that it forces us to cover all of the scriptures. Another advantage is this. It helps to keep passages in context. 
It's very easy to just pull verses out of the Bible for a particular purpose without considering what came before and what comes after. When you go through a book of the Bible, it aids in helping us to understand verses uh, more clearly. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, and actually it makes my job easier too. I don't have to, you know, worry about what I'm going to preach next Sunday. What I'm going to preach is the next several verses in that book, and the topic of those verses is the topic of my sermon. And uh, that does, in some cases, make things easier for me. Um, and that's what this is all about, right? What's easiest for me. <laughs> So, we're going to begin this study of uh, 1 Peter. Now, you might ask, <clears throat> why 1 Peter? Um, well, one reason is the last time we went through a consecutive series like this, we were in an Old Testament book in 1 Samuel. So, we're moving to a New Testament book. But the other reason is because 1 Peter is just a really great book. Great book. Uh, it's short. It's brief. Just five chapters. Martin Luther said everything, <coughs> excuse me, everything a Christian needs to know is contained in 1 Peter. It's a very comprehensive book um, with a lot of strong doctrine and a lot of great practical applications. We're going to see applications with regard to um, marriage relationships. We're going to see some instruction with regard to the place the Bible ought to have in our lives. We're going to see some instruction with regard to spiritual warfare. Um, a, A lot of very clear, practical instruction to help us as Christians. But here's the biggest reason why I think 1 Peter is appropriate for us. It is extremely well-suited for the cultural situation that we find ourselves in as Christians, as Americans, in 2014, as believers. This book is very well-suited for the place we find ourselves. So, let, let me explain to you what I mean by sharing some, some photos here. This is a picture of three women, and they're called a thruple. A thruple are three women who are married to one another. So this is from Massachusetts. Three women in Massachusetts married to one another and they're expecting their first child. And you can see by the picture that they're anticipating that. A thruple. Uh, Here's a a bus. This is actually in London. And on the side it says, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. A lot of atheist groups putting forth a lot of effort to um, advance their agenda, their worldview. Uh, here is a picture <clears throat> that might be a little harder to, to, um, to discern. Um, this is actually a church, a church building, but it's no longer being used as a church. It's a brewery. These are, I don't know what they're called, but this is where they brew the beer. and um, You can see down here tables where people are, are eating and, and drinking beer uh, in this former church. This actually is pretty common. I mean, a lot of churches just going under, and church buildings are now being used for restaurants and homes and, and even breweries. <clears throat> now, when you see this kind of thing, and we don't need to dwell on this too much, but when you see this kind of thing happening in our world, doesn't it make you feel as a Christian a little bit like a kind of a stranger 
in a strange land? Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like in this world that you're just kind of an outsider? That you're just out of step with the way the culture seems to be going? Like you kind of feel like you're an alien? Like you just don't belong here? Do you ever feel that way as a Christian? Trying to live faithfully before God and it just seems like everything that you're trying to do, there's so many pressures against that. It's like that old Beach Boys song, I just wasn't made for these times. You ever feel that way as a Christian? I just wasn't made for this world. I don't feel like I belong here. Everything that I hold so dear is under attack, and everything that I react negatively against seems to be celebrated in this world. I don't feel like I belong. I feel like a stranger. The temptation, when we begin to feel this way as Christians, the temptation is to react in one of two ways, to either assimilate or evacuate. To assimilate, to just say, well, you know, might as well do as the Romans do. Uh, might as well just kind of give in and just believe and do what everybody else is doing. I mean, that certainly is the easiest way to respond to all this. Just assimilate, just blend in. But the other option is to evacuate. That is, I'm scared of the world. I don't like these people. I don't agree with them, so I'm going to run away. And I'm going to get in my little huddle somewhere and protect myself and flee from the world. What Peter is going to tell us in this book is that neither of these is the proper response to living in the world in which we live. And it's going to take him five chapters, and it's going to take us about 17 sermons to understand exactly what Peter has to say to us about how we're supposed to live in the culture in which we live right now. And again, the reason I'm saying that Peter is so well-suited to be writing about this is because this letter is written into a cultural situation that's very similar to the situation that we're in. Peter's readers were Christians who themselves were under attack for what they believed. Now, they weren't enduring full-blown persecution. It's not like Peter's readers were getting burned at the stake or arrested or getting their heads chopped off. I mean, that happened to Christians, but that wasn't happening to Peter's audience. Peter's audience is kind of in a pre-persecution stage. They're in a place where they're maligned, they're alienated, they're attacked verbally for their faith. But persecution hasn't quite broken out. And that's, that's the situation we're in, isn't it? And I'm not saying persecution is going to break out, but, you know, however bad you think things are in our culture... You know, we're not being rounded up and arrested. We don't have police coming through our doors and shutting down our worship service. But we are, it seems, getting increasingly alienated in this culture. It seems like more and more we're the minority. And things are moving in a direction very different than what we, we value and, and perceive. So <clears throat> what Peter, the people, the peeper, the pedal. <laughs> uh, it could have gotten worse. I'm glad it didn't. Uh, The people that Peter is writing to uh, are people who are in a situation that's very similar to the one that we're in. So, uh, here's Peter's purpose. That could have gotten bad too. Here's Peter's purpose in 1 Peter. Here's his purpose for the entire book of 1 Peter. It's to equip God's people, to equip you and me with hope as we walk through a world that is hostile to the gospel. So, okay, that's the purpose statement for the whole book of 1 Peter. Not 
necessarily for this particular sermon. We're going to take 17 sermons to open up that purpose statement. Every sermon that we go through in 1 Peter is going to be read through this lens. Peter's attempt to equip us with hope so that we can walk through a world that is hostile to what we believe. And so, I'm calling this sermon series Walking in Hope. Walking in Hope. Because, I mean, that, that's what could happen. When, when you start to see the culture just moving away in such radical directions, it's just very easy to start losing hope, very easy to fall into doubt and discouragement. And that's one of the themes of this letter, Peter seeking to give hope to God's people. So, um, <clears throat> we're going to begin today with just the first two verses of this book. And then, God willing, we're going to work through this one passage at a time. I, I promise you we'll cover more than two verses at a time because uh, uh, we want to get out of this book before the end of the year for sure. Um, but we'll start here with these first two verses. And, and here's something that I want you to see that I think is just kind of startling, is that <clears throat> Peter, in an attempt to give hope to God's people, begins in a place that we might not expect him to begin. He begins with some pretty heavy and rigorous doctrine. In fact, the place he begins is talking about the doctrine of election. The, the, the most dreaded doctrine maybe in all of Scripture. The, the doctrine that so many Christians just want to avoid. So many Christians just don't want to talk about this. The doctrine of election, the way God chooses people to be His own. That's where Peter begins. He's got a demoralized, discouraged group of Christians. He's going to write a letter to give them hope. And where does he begin? Unpacking the doctrine of election. <laughs> now, you know, that's probably not the way I would do it, but that's the way Peter's doing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, in, in the form of a good consecutive expository sermon, we're going to have to deal with this topic because that's the subject of this passage. Okay, so we're going to begin with these first two verses. If you please stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 Peter 1, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. God in heaven, we do ask that you would open our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Here's what I want to show you this morning. The first sermon in this series on 1 Peter is the way God chooses the wrong people to do the right work. That's what these first two verses are telling us, the way God chooses the wrong people to do the right work. Okay, so we're going to think about who God chooses, how he chooses, and what God chooses us to do. So those are our three points. So the first is this, who God chooses. Now, when I say God chooses the wrong people, let, let, me, let me clarify that, okay? I, I don't mean to suggest that God makes mistakes, that he makes wrong choices. What I mean is that in the eyes of the world, God seems to choose wrong people. He chooses people 
that we might think would be least expected to be used by God to carry out his purposes and to advance his kingdom. Over and over again, God does it this way, just in a way that is completely contrary to our expectations. And we see that in at least two ways here. First of all, let's think of Peter. Peter, the writer of this letter. Look at the very beginning of the passage. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is an apostle. What's an apostle? Well, an apostle is basically a messenger. A messenger sent by somebody with a very important message. And in this case, Peter is being sent by Jesus Christ. And the apostles were appointed and sent by Jesus to lay the doctrinal foundation for the beginning of the church. That's the role and work of an apostle. An apostle is different than a disciple. There were many disciples in the New Testament times. Disciples still exist today. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we're disciples. Every apostle is a disciple, but not every disciple is an apostle. The apostles were given a very special task for building the church shortly after Jesus' resurrection. And so that's who Peter is appointed to be here. That's who he's calling himself, Peter, an apostle. Now, sometimes we get wrong ideas about uh, apostles. Maybe you've seen the movie The Apostle with Robert Duvall. You remember that? It was like 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, pretty uh, entertaining movie, but a movie that gives lots of really bad impressions about what an apostle actually is like. Robert Duvall goes into a river and baptizes himself. You know, that's not what an apostle is. An apostle is not self-appointed and self-sent. An apostle is sent by Jesus. But another major misunderstanding in that movie, The Apostle, is that we don't have apostles anymore. The office of the apostle is one that ceased. It came to an end after the basic foundation of doctrine was laid for the start of the church. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. You can check that out. So apostles had a very specific purpose, and Peter here is called for that purpose. Now, one of the reasons that's so interesting is when we think about who Peter was. Do you remember some things we know about Peter? I know Pastor Brian a few weeks ago preached on Peter's denials. But this is the same Peter we're talking about. This is the Peter who denied Jesus three times publicly. This is the Peter who once cut off the ear of a soldier. This is the Peter who urged Jesus not to go to the cross. The, the only way any of us can be saved. And Peter is saying, no, Jesus, you don't need to do that. And then Jesus turns to Peter and calls him Satan. Now, you're doing an interview. Let's just pretend. You're doing an interview considering someone to be a leader of a church, a pastor of a church, or an elder of a church. And he says, well, let me give you a little bit of my background. I once cut off a man's ear, and Jesus called me Satan. <laughs> Do you want me to lead your church? Well, what would be your reaction to that? That guy, that, his resume is going to the bottom of the stack. And yet this, this is the same Peter that Jesus chooses to be an apostle. Isn't that Unbelievable. That God would choose to use. That's what I mean when I say God chooses the wrong people. He chooses people you wouldn't expect. He chooses the last person that would come to mind to do amazing work. This is what a guy named Malcolm Muggeridge, he was a British writer years ago, 
summed up Christianity in this phrase. He said, Christianity is basically the sanctification of failure. That's what the whole Christian religion is about. Taking people who have been largely failures and using them to do great things. God chooses what seem to be the wrong people to do the right work. Well, there's another way we see this. It's as we consider the place the Gentiles play uh, in the writing here of 1 Peter. Let me show you a a map. Um, If you look back at verse 1, let's look at that first before the map. Look at verse 1, and you'll see that Peter is writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in, and then he lists these regions, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So you'll see up here on the map, all of these areas are listed. There's Bithynia and Pontus, there's Asia, there's Galatia, there's Cappadocia. And this whole area right now is modern-day Turkey, and you have Greece over here, Uh, much of the the church thriving over here. And this is an area where there are various churches and bodies of believers uh, growing up and flourishing. And in fact, if you look at uh, Bithynia here, it's kind of interesting to note that that's where the city of Nicaea was. And we just quoted the, uh, we confessed the Nicene Creed. So that's where the Nicene Creed was written when one of the first ecumenical councils got together uh, in this region of Bithynia. Makes you wonder how much influence Peter had on that because you'll notice that this passage, these two verses, are very Trinitarian. An emphasis on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, that's what the Nicene Creed kind of developed, our doctrine of the Trinity there in Bithynia. <clears throat> but this was an area at the time that was extremely diverse. A lot of different cultures, a lot of different kinds of people, a lot of different uh, levels of uh, socioeconomic status, a lot of different religions. It was really a very pluralistic place. So again, another thing we have in common with the audience uh, of Peter's uh, readers. But for our purposes, what's most interesting to note is that this area was inhabited almost entirely by Gentiles. So Peter here is writing not to fellow Jews, not to religious people, not to the church-going people all their lives. He's writing to Gentiles. He's writing to people who were formerly considered to be pagans, outsiders, people unwelcome among God's people. I mean, a Jew wasn't even allowed to sit down and have dinner with a Gentile. That's how much they were excluded. That's how unclean Gentiles were regarded. And so isn't it remarkable when you look back at the text and see that Peter says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and mentions all these these areas. What Peter is doing is he's saying these Gentiles who were once not God's people are actually God's chosen people. The Gentiles are not outside of God's scope of redemption. They're chosen by him. Here's Peter. This is Peter, a Jew, someone who would have held Gentiles in contempt, is now applying the word elect to them. They are the chosen people of God. They're favored of God. Again, another example. God choosing the wrong people. People you would never think. Gentiles who've been living in disobedience, living separate from God all their lives, and yet God has now elected them for his purposes. 
An example of this is found in the life of Harry Truman. I'm reading a biography of Harry Truman now, and it's taken me forever. It's a thousand pages, but it's a great biography, and I'm learning a lot about this man, 33rd president of the United States. He was vice president first under FDR, Franklin Delano, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You might know the story. FDR elected to his fourth term as president. Harry Truman as, vice, as his vice president. Just a couple months into his fourth term, FDR dies. And suddenly, Harry Truman is advanced to the White House and is president and leader of the free world. And that was such a shock to the people of the United States because nobody thought Harry Truman could serve as president of the United States. Everybody was convinced he was the wrong person for the job. In fact, what the biography says is what alarmed people was not so much that the greatest of men had fallen in FDR dying, but that the least of men had taken his place. That's what had everybody uncomfortable. People were saying, you know, if Harry Truman could be president, my next door neighbor could be president. That's how lowly he was regarded. But he turned out to be, I mean, maybe you'll disagree with me, but he turned out to be a, uh, an effective leader of our nation. If your next door neighbor could be president, if God could use Peter, if God can use the Gentiles, I assure you, friends, God can use you. I don't know what your sins are. I don't know what your mistakes are. I don't know what your failures are. I don't know how difficult your past has been. I don't know how many regrets you're carrying with you. I don't know what a mess you've made of your family, your private life. But none of them disqualifies you from being used by God for mighty and great purposes in his kingdom. Because he chooses the wrong people, the least expected people, to do the right work. So that's one thing we have to keep in mind with God's choice. He's not choosing just the great, mighty, talented, competent, godly people. He's choosing people that you would never guess to do great things. Okay? So that's who God chooses. But now secondly, how about how God chooses? Let's consider this. How does God choose? Now here's where things get a little complicated, controversial even. How does God choose? What, what criteria does God use when he chooses? This is a very hotly debated topic. It separates denominations and, and Christians. It's been debated since the beginning of church history, and the debate continues. Um, but again, I want you to focus on this verse elect that you see in verse 1. That, that word is pretty much synonymous with the word chosen. So we could say to those who are chosen exiles. Peter says to those who are elect exiles. The question is, how does God elect? How does he choose? And this passage tells us to some degree how that happens. We can connect the word elect to the phrase at the beginning of verse 2, according to. So to those who are elect, according to is one way you could read this. To those who are chosen, according to. So Peter is telling us here something about how God chooses his people. Now here's the common understanding of how this works. Typically people will say this. God, in eternity past, 
looked into the future and he took note of what all of you and me were going to do. He took note of who would believe and who would exercise their free will, who would come to him. God looked ahead, made mental notes, and then in response chose those who he knew would choose him. Okay? That, that's the common view of God's election or God's choice, that his choice is in response to something that we're doing, that God hangs back until he looks ahead to see what we're going to do, when he sees that we do the right thing, he says, okay, I'm going to reward that right thing by choosing you. Now, this verse, admittedly, would seem to give some credence to that view because it says to those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, right? So in verse 2, it seems to suggest that what God is doing is choosing in accordance with his foreknowledge, and, and he is. He is choosing according, according to his foreknowledge. But the question is, what, what is meant here by the word foreknow or foreknowledge? What is it that God is foreknowing? So as a way of explaining this, let me bring up a couple of other passages. Do you remember Matthew 7, where Jesus is talking about people who come to him and say, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And then Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about his sheep, and he says, my sheep know me. He says, I know my sheep. In both of those verses, what Jesus is talking about is a, is a personal knowledge of people. He's not talking about knowledge of what those people would do. He's talking about a personal knowledge, a personal relationship he has with those people. And you can see it again. If you just go ahead to verse 20, go ahead to verse 20 in chapter 1. This is talking about Jesus. Verse 19 actually says, With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, and then in verse 20, it says, he, that is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, is Peter saying that the Father knew what Jesus would do, knew that Jesus would come to the Father, and so therefore that's the basis on which the Father chooses the Son to do the work? No, of course not. The Father has known Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, for all eternity. He has a personal knowledge. That's the knowledge we're talking about here. It's not a knowledge of information. It's a knowledge of persons. We're not talking cognition. We're talking commitment. We, we could maybe even reinterpret this to say the elect exiles according to the foreloving of God the Father would be another way to say this. The point here is that God the Father has been personally committed to you and to me, his people, from before the foundation of the world. And it's on the basis of that knowledge that he makes his choice. Not on the basis of what you're going to do, based on the fact that he has set his heart on you from before the foundations of the world. That, I believe, is the biblical way to understand foreknowledge. It's not a foreknowledge that, it's a foreknowledge of who. Now, why does this make any difference? Why am I making a big deal out of this? Because 
What, what this means is that your commitment to God as unwavering and inconsistent as it is does not interrupt or affect one iota God's commitment to you. Because God was committed to you long before you were ever committed to him. You were on his heart before he was on your heart. He chose you before you chose him. This is an essential doctrine for us to understand. If we're going to walk through a hostile world, we're going to be looking for encouragement and strength and stability. How alarming would it be to think that God might turn from me if I start to waver in my faith? What we have is an assurance that God is fully committed to us because he has been for all eternity. What's going to change that? So this is a glorious, encouraging, blessed doctrine that God has chosen his people according to the foreloving, the forecommitment, the foreknowledge of the Father. Well, it goes on. And notice how the Trinity comes forth here in verse 2. We have the foreknowledge of the Father. It's one person of the Trinity. Um, but we also have the sanctification of the Spirit. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of the Spirit, excuse me, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. So this is how God takes his foreknowledge and his choice of his people and applies them to our hearts. If God had just chosen us from before the foundation of the world, that would not save anybody. What God had to do is send his spirit to actually change you and to change me, to give us a new heart, to give us eyes that see, to turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And that's what Peter is talking about here. We sing about this in this hymn, And Can It Be?, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God, diffused a quickening ray. That's the sending of the spirit. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what the Holy Spirit does to those that God has foreknown and chosen. And then lastly... <clears throat> We see in verse 2, this election takes place according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, that struck me as an odd way for Peter to phrase that, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Because I think I would have expected him to say for faith in Jesus Christ, wouldn't you? God foreknew us, and he chose us according to his foreknowledge and sanctification of the Spirit so that we would have faith in Jesus. But that's not what he says. He chose us for obedience to Jesus. Now, does this mean that Peter thinks we're saved by our obedience? I don't think so. If you look in verse 9, he says... We have obtained the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Verse 9, so salvation is through faith alone. That's what Peter believes. But I think Peter is mentioning this word obedience because he believes that it's extremely important for us as Christians, if we're going to walk through a hostile world, if our profession of faith is going to have any credibility before a watching world, 
We better be people who take obedience to Jesus seriously. Our walk better match our talk. There's nothing worse than a Christian who's always spouting out all these platitudes and talking about all the things that he or she believes and then completely contradicting what they believe through some kind of rebellion, immoral lifestyle. What Peter is saying here is that obedience to Jesus, not just what you profess to believe, but your submission to the Lordship of Christ is absolutely essential before a watching world. It was uh, Lloyd-Jones who said, uh, it's when the church is most absolutely different than the world that the world actually starts paying attention to the church. And the problem in the church today, and has been probably for centuries, is the fact that the church has so little influence on the world because the world seems to have so much influence on the church. It's when we're different than the world. It's when we're living differently, when we have different values, and we spend our time differently, spend our money differently. That's when our witness begins to gain credibility and makes a difference on people. And this is what's important to Peter. This is what you're elect for. This is what you're chosen for. You're chosen by God, not so you can say, hey, I'm elect, I've been predestined, now I can kick back and enjoy my life and do whatever I want. No. Peter says, you're chosen for a purpose. You're chosen for obedience. But then he goes on. Thank goodness he didn't end there because we all know how hard it is to be obedient. We all know how easy it is to get discouraged by our disobedience. And so Peter says that we're also chosen for sprinkling with his blood. At every point and every place where we fail, where we're not obedient, we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, which is fully sufficient to cleanse us, to cover us, to forgive us. Every time you fail, you confess your sins to Jesus. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Peter makes sure that he includes that in his exhortation here so that we're not overcome with discouragement, so that we constantly go to the gospel for encouragement. So... That, that's how God chooses. Now, now, here's the question probably some of you are asking. How do I know if I'm chosen? That, that's the big question, right? Whenever you talk about election, whenever you talk about God's choice, how do I know I'm chosen? What if I'm not chosen? What if, I, what if I'm not? Peter's writing to the elect here. What if I'm not numbered among the elect? What now? Boy, would there be anything more discouraging than thinking you're not on God's list? Well, what's the answer to that? The answer is this. It's simple. The Bible never commands you or me to try to find out who is on God's list of the elect. The Bible never promises that that information is going to be given to you or to me. These are things that are locked up in the internal counsel of God. That information is not provided for us. It's not promised to us. We're not commanded to seek it out. You're not saved by knowing whether you're among God's elect or not. You're not justified by knowing whether God has chosen you or not. If you want to know if you're elect, here's the way that you know. Very simple. Repent and believe in Jesus. Turn from your sins and trust in what Jesus Christ has done. 
in the shed blood on the cross, the sprinkling of his blood, in his glorious resurrection, and put all your hope by faith in that. That's how you know if you're elect. That's how you know if you're chosen. It's not any more complicated than that. You don't have to read into God's eternal decrees. You don't have to get, get your way into the mind of an, a holy and eternal God. Repent and believe. So that's how God chooses. Last thing to consider is what God chooses us to do. I'm saying God chooses the wrong people to do the right work. So what is this work that God chooses us to do? Well, this is pretty simple. The answer is just a two-letter word. Go. That's what God chooses us to do. To go into this world, into this culture that seems so hostile, that seems so contrary to everything we believe, go into it. Don't assimilate, don't evacuate, but go into the culture. Be dispersed, okay? If you look back at verse 1, you'll see this. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, it says. Now, first of all, let, let me explain this, this exile thing. What, what, what does this mean, these, these exiles? It, it could be that Peter's talking to people who are literally exiled from their country, but I don't think that's what it means. I think what Peter has in mind here are spiritual exiles. So this gets back to what I was saying at the beginning of the message. What Peter is doing here is addressing God's people as strangers in a hostile world. They're spiritual exiles. He knows that they are people who do not fit in the world in which they believe and in which they live. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11. It's referring to the great heroes of the Christian faith. It says these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. I want to encourage you by this, friends, because if you have ever felt like a foreigner or a stranger, like you're alienated, like you're out of step, I want you to know that that is a really good sign. In fact, that's one of the evidences that you're one of the elect. Because this is the natural, common experience of all Christians living in a hostile world. We, we get up and we come to church when everybody else is sleeping in and playing golf. And we just feel like, what am I doing? We give money to the church and to help the poor when everybody else is saving all their money and getting richer and richer and building bigger and bigger houses. And we think, why am I giving my money away when I could be getting rich? We're remaining sexually pure while all our friends are out sleeping around and seeming to have a great time. And we just feel this pall to do like the Romans do, to assimilate. What Peter's saying here is that this is a common experience of all Christians to feel like an exile, to feel like a foreigner, to feel like a stranger. It's a sign that God has chosen you. It's a sign that he's using you. It's a sign that the Spirit of God is at work in you. But it's not just being an exile that Peter notes here. He says that we're exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion. What that means is that God's people naturally are scattered throughout the world. We're dispersed throughout the world. That's why I say the task that God chooses us to do is to go, to be scattered, 
to get involved, to move into the culture, even as intimidating as it might be, because this is what God has always done. Remember when he chose Abraham? He brought Abraham to himself. The first thing he told Abraham to do was go into a nation that I will show you. Jesus chooses the 12 disciples. And what does he tell them to do? Go and make disciples of all nations. And now God stands here through 1 Peter, and he says to you and he says to me, go. Go to your neighbors. Go to Ball State's campus. Go to downtown Muncie with a church plant. Go to Yorktown. Go to Monterey, Mexico. Go to St. Louis. Go to Asia. Go to Japan. Go to Australia. Go to the poor. Go out. Be scattered into the world. Don't evacuate. That's the task that God has called us to do, to be people on the move. And it's something that we have to remember, particularly as we get this sanctuary and as that building gets erected and as we start worshiping in there, it'll be very easy to think, you know what? We're done. We've finished the job. Now we can just sit back and enjoy our beautiful new sanctuary while the world goes to hell. That is not an option. Friends, that building is given to us to be a blessing, not just to us, but to be a blessing to others. That is a building that is a launching pad for engagement with the world. That is not a fortress of protection to keep the world out and to keep us from going to the world. That's not the point. That is a place that God is blessing us to do great things with and to whom much is given, much will be expected. So this is the way God chooses. He, he chooses to be a blessing, but the ones he chooses, he always exhorts to be a blessing to others, even to a culture that hates everything that we love in hopes that through our witness and through the hope that we have, that their hope might be found on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's what Peter's going to help us to figure out how to do over the coming weeks. So, Ben, why don't you come forward and we'll sing this song in conclusion. God, we thank you for the richness of your word. And uh, please help us to know how to go, uh, to not take your election of us as a reason to be complacent. We pray, Father, that you would continue to bless this series, that you would equip us as your people to be effective servants in a world that's hostile to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.